We are the Love Jays, and you're listening to Married Millennials. A conversation about being young, in love, and navigating life one student loan payment at a time. I'm Joy. I'm Justin. Let's get to it. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to episode 81 of Married Millennials. You guys, I relaxed all weekend, and it was glorious. I could use another 17 days of it, but it was quite wonderful. I feel like the only time you relax is when I go out of town. Well, yeah, because you don't know... I actually realize that I don't know how to relax either. It's like you have to constantly tell yourself that it's okay that you're not doing anything. Yeah, it's really tough. Yeah. And I think the the pressures of just our society in general, you just feel like you always have to be busy. You always right. have to be doing something. Right. And I have just fallen down the rabbit hole something terrible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just, I, I literally don't know what to do is I have to occupy my time right now. I have to do something that fulfills my time. And I do a horrible, an absolute horrible yeah. job of relaxing. Yes. Horrible. So you deal with that feeling for like 10 hours, pretty much. You can't, you can't relax. No. Because you're guilty. And then you slowly start to accept that this is okay that you're doing this. You're trying to take care of yourself. Uh, but like I said, I could use another 17 days because the feeling comes back. You're like, okay, it's been a couple hours. Yeah. yeah. I, I, have to, I got to work on it. For those of you who know how to relax on weekends, I am so jealous yeah. of you because I, I have failed miserably in this department. But that, you know, that needs to be my goal for 2017. Learn how to relax. Or to, shoot, this is 2017 already. <laughs> 2018. I can't even keep up with the years. But that's what I need. I need to, I need to relax. I need to be like, yeah. it's okay. It is okay to relax. I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico this weekend. Random, I know. And that is just a interesting place. <laughs> and, I mean, if anyone is there, anyone listening is from New Mexico, Albuquerque in particular, I know you're proud of where you're from. But I was like, this is this city's kind of boring. <laughs> but I, I but look, you could probably relax there. Yes, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, it's just not my. It was not my my cup of tea. But I will say, we found a a like a bar, sports bar mm-hmm. that had vegan options for everything on their menu, and I was shocked. Yeah. So we went there three times. I went there every single day for veganism, my for my veganism. for my meals. I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. And I wanted to try other spots. I was like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. The food was good. So I did actually appreciate that. So shout out to that bar in New I'm Mexico. I'm still clowning New Mexico. New Mexico's doing all right. I'm not saying that they're not doing all right. I'm saying I'm born and raised in California where there's a lot happening. Right. I mean, their downtown looked like a downtown of the smallest city in Southern California. Really? Like genuinely. I was like, this is downtown. The tallest building was made. But their housing is hella affordable. Oh my gosh, (laughs) so affordable. I think we looked up one house, four bedroom, two bath, $185,000. Yeah, I can't even. Oh my god! Yeah, I can't even get into that because I'm I'm gonna get. Hey, if you want to do a fun exercise in dreaming, you <laughs> should you should look up housing prices in Los Angeles and start with like what your bare minimum would be. Like, well, this would be nothing. <laughs> I just basically need a washer and dryer. See what that would cost, and then type in your dream home. See what that would cost. Yeah, it's just so expensive. It's one of those where I, I wish I wasn't as married to the California coast like I am. I mean, we've we've had this conversation multiple times and every time we have a serious conversation, it's like, you know, maybe we will just pick up and relocate after looking at prices in other cities and states. But I get stuck right on back. I mean, I love it out here. Well, I, we're so spoiled. I mean, we're, we've got... We are. We've got nature. We have the mountains. We have the ocean. We have great weather. You can get I mean, everything. It's, it's hard you can get to everything in California. Yeah, it's and so our family's tough. here. Yeah, true. So it's. That's I mean, where pool. do you go? Yeah, yeah. That's a very big the only pool. other place I would go, and it wouldn't be that hard to get me there, would be New York. Yeah, but that's just. I mean, that's another. But major that's city. another exactly. I'm not gonna relax with no ocean access. So I'm not even They're, trying to go they there. They have. Oh well, they have the. Yeah, you can go up to the Hamptons and get yeah. and get to some beach access, but nothing yeah. like California. In the Hudson, they they got a, no, that's a, a river. Yeah, that's not the beach, but it's a body of water. No, nah, I need some sand, uh, where there's some waves, lots of dead bodies, some relaxation. <laughs> right, that's what I need. Not rivers. What, why did you? What, what morbid comment did you just make? That there's dead bodies in the Hudson. Everybody knows that. Oh my gosh! So <laughs> we can't we can't even have a good conversation without 
without morbid Molly over here. <laughs> you don't think about that when you no, think No, I don't think about any. Like, what, no. What do you think about? I think it's water. I, I, all I'm thinking about is, ah, this is water. I'm not thinking about, okay, well, there's bodies floating in this body of They're water. They're not floating. They do like the, the, okay, never mind. Yeah, mor- morbid Molly over here. Don't you stay in your corner and not rain on the parade of those who, because if people listening like, damn, I'm looking at the Hudson River right now, and this is how you're going to just disrupt my hey, viewing I love I love the city. I love the Hudson. Everything's fine, but you won't see people swimming in there is all I'm saying. I also wanted to touch on the Me Too movement. This week, Me Too was trending on, well, every social media platform. And it was basically people recounting their stories of sexual harassment and abuse. And it was... Awful. I just wanted to bring it up. We touched on it in the episode. But I wanted to say that for those of you who need support which is everybody everyone needs to be supporting everyone right now but if you specifically need a place uh, a safe space for support we're here for you as a man you understand to some degree what women go to and you also understand how your actions sometimes perpetuate these dangers right but when it's written in form like it was this past week in, in long form and particularly, it just makes you kind of take a step back. It's right. like, damn, like, am, I one, am, am I contributing to, to these stereotypes or in, in, in these encounters that are making women feel uncomfortable? And then you, know, you having to think again, it's like, okay, these are what, this is what women are dealing with on a constant daily basis. It just makes you become a little more conscious and a little more aware of how your actions and your words can really create conflict or really bring about change. Truly. And I think, too, what's been interesting about this week, because I didn't post anything, and I think it's because it's not that I've never experienced these things. Like, I've been uh, touched all over my body and, you know, put their face on mine, unwanted, like, kisses on the cheek. You know, I've had things that I've had unwanted advances, but nothing that I felt dignified saying me too, which to me is sad for me to be able or for me to feel that how I have been harassed in my life isn't as bad as what some other people have experienced. So I'm not even going to talk about it. Like that's, yeah, it sucks. that's really sad. And we all, we all, we all, we all have to do better. We all uh, have a responsibility to make this Go away. Well, yeah, but really, when you say we, it's it's men. I mean, we have to just, I mean, let's just be honest here, is that men, yeah. we have to do better. I mean, that's yeah. what, it, what it comes down to. And when, when 45's issues came out with the locker room talk, you know, that spurred conversation in this direction, and now we have a, another campaign with the Me Too that's going on, and these conversations are continuing to happen. It's not like something that you didn't know. But when these mm-hmm. conversations come to the forefront, it is your responsibility as as men, and, and I'm including myself in, in this this group, is that we just have to be more conscious and more understanding of our words and our actions and realizing how what we do are directly affecting women. Whether we see it or whether we believe it, it is affecting women, and all this does is just carry down the line. And now society is is being impacted as a whole and then what happens when we raise young daughters and we raise kids and so it, it has to it has to start with us mm-hmm. so while yes i agree we all have to do better but you need to call it out directly what it is is that men we just have to do better yeah. with our actions and staying on the message of being better men and, and better role models this week we sat down with writer producer and director nathan cheney who is the creator of the upcoming documentary a fatherless generation And this was probably one of the most dynamic interviews we've had thus far on the platform. Uh, Hearing Nathan talk about his experience growing up without a father, and even though he did have interactions with his father throughout his life, really just being vulnerable and sitting there and explaining and showing the world, like, this is the effect that not having my father around or having the father that I needed around, mm-hmm. how it impacted my life. And mm-hmm. you know, we hear so much in today's society of, of people who are growing up in single-parent households or people who are, who are growing up without parents who aren't even married. It, it, it's just a, that's the, the trend of our society now, unfortunately. And to hear Nathan tell his story and be so vulnerable about it was absolutely amazing.
Male role models are essential, and I'm so proud of Nathan for having the courage and vulnerability to share the story. I think we can all benefit from listening to it. Introducing Nathan Cheney. On this week's episode, we are joined by writer, director, and producer of the upcoming documentary of Fatherless Generation, Nate Cheney. Mr. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me. I really, uh, I've watched your show. Apparently, you were giving me crap earlier for not watching the end of the episode. Yes. So I wanted to have a little bit of a surprise at the end. So. Okay. So, you, so you're waiting. So, <laughs> yeah. this will, so what you're going to say now is that this, your show, your episode, will be the first one you listen to in its entire All, all the way through. Yeah. Got you. So thank, yeah. thanks for your honesty. We appreciate it. Yeah. I don't appreciate it, but I do appreciate it. <laughs> I mean, what are We appreciate your candor. No, but that's good. We, we need yeah. honesty. I mean, we're millennials, and I think at the end of the day, you have about a 60 second span and sometimes you get distracted because I've got 14 other pop-ups online and I watch your video I see it I listen to the interviews but I sometimes you know I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for that okay okay well I, I will take that we'll make sure you just open your podcast app right there on your phone you yeah. subscribe to Married Millennials oh so you're doing you it have, before you then leave. you don't even have to watch I do you get your newsletter I okay, well, that's good. So I've responded a few times. Baby yeah. steps. Yes. This Baby steps. Good, yeah. So we're, we're getting there. You're not expected to watch my entire movie, though. But you I'm definitely know. going to watch it because <laughs> I'm supportive. We're excited about it. See, I'm supportive. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just giving you a hard time. We've known, we've known Nathan for what? Eight years now? It's been a minute. No, it's yeah. six. Six years? years yeah. it's, it's been a while. It feels like eight. And yeah. I know this film has been something that you've specifically talked with joy about for a yep. long mm-hmm. time. And now here we are, six years later, film is done. It's almost released. I mean, the title in and of itself, A Fatherless Generation. Joy and I have talked about it so many times of the importance of having a father figure in your life. Both Joy and I are very blessed and fortunate to still have our fathers in our lives. My parents are, are still married. Joy's parents were married up until just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So we grew up in a home that had both parents. And talking to friends who grew up, whether it was just their mother or just their father, their experience, their childhood, and now their adulthood has, has changed. So you, are, you created this film about such an important topic. What drove you to create a film that, that touched on a topic that so many people deal with today? I mean, I came from a very personal place. I mean, honestly, I wasn't really, when I set out initially, I wasn't trying to save the world or anything. I think that it was a personal thing that helped, that, that affected me. And I felt like there weren't enough people talking about it. And I initially, when I first started the film, I followed a, a girl and a young family around. I did like a bunch of uh, casting things for like the Boys and Girls Club, I think. Okay. It was, it was a, initially, it was a, a film school idea. I was in film school and I had a thesis and most every other, every person uh, in my class, they had big, fancy budgets and <laughs> r- rich parents. Yes. And, yeah. and I was, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I paid my way through school, and I was like, I got $500. And so I somehow was like, I'm going to do a documentary. And it just kind of, you know, I finished it, got the degree, and um, that idea just it kept living with me. And I couldn't, I put it on the shelf for probably about six months. And one day I had a dream, and I woke up. And I realized that I had to keep doing it. Like, there was something about it. And uh, I got a new job. I started working at Access Hollywood and uh, started as a production assistant initially. And just kind of, just started socializing, having a conversation with people and meeting people in the industry and Hollywood and, and all that. And I was like, people were like, wow, like, why, where's it at? I yeah, want to see it. Why are we seeing this? Why are we seeing this? And you shouldn't, you shouldn't give up on that. Don't quit yeah. on that. I would say that, is, that was my reaction too. When I say I've been waiting to see this film for six years, it's not exaggeration. I'm, like, giddy with excitement. It's, it's time. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, initially, I mean, Joy, what she was, we were literally at our desk. We're, like, right next to each <laughs> yeah. other. The, the, the uh, ups and downs of uh, certain relationships, I won't recommend, or, you know, <laughs> suggest it. <Yeah. laughs> I, was that, I was that friend. Right, that was you were the, for, and she, for yours and ours. This? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, well, that's what guys do. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right, right. Like, I don't know. Thanks for your emotional that's support. That's true. So you were there during <laughs> the during breakup. breakup. Yeah. 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 And yeah. so you were getting it all. I was getting it all. And then for hey, a minute. Hey, I, I appreciate you, Nathan. I appreciate you. I mean, you know, I mean, I was, you know, slightly a part of the glue that's kept you guys together. Oh, give stop. Myself, you know, stop. Okay, if you want to give yourself that credit, I, I will, t- I will, I will give that like, to you. Nathan was like, leave him. <laughs> so that's Never how you feel? Never go back. You know, is that the true story? You gotta say that whatever. No, He's right here. No. Can we have this conversation? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk later? But yeah, no, we, we, uh, I talked 
to you about it. And um, I think you, you were really supportive at the time, too, of just, mm-hmm. like, you need to keep pursuing this. Mm-hmm. And, and we just talked about our own kind of experience. I know you guys said you, you – I've met your parents, but, like, you, you guys have seen what it's like to work in a functional household. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, I grew up, like, just – it was a pretty chaotic situation. I, I had a brother – I have a brother and sister – and I'm the middle kid. Apparently, I'm the one supposed to have all the issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think at the end of the day, um, I realized that I, was, uh, I wasn't I was alone. And and through my pain and my struggle of even trying to find the courage to even open up and be honest, uh, I, I came to a place where I, I realized that um, I had to be more open and honest. And I followed this family around for like four months. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is going to be the story. I'm going to just be the fly in the wall. I'm going to be the filmmaker. Oh, so you weren't even going to insert yourself. None. And nope. the topic was a single parent household? What yeah, was it was the... about everybody. Okay. I was just going to like, you know, just talk about this whole like conglomerance of layers of fatherlessness. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it got to a point where I'm watching footage and stuff and I spent all this money and da 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 it's never ending. And, and I got to a place where I'm like, this doesn't feel like... Uh, Authentic. It doesn't. It didn't. And I'm sitting here realizing, like, I'm hearing people talk about fatherlessness and doing all the research I'd done and still doing. It was a place of, like, I'm a victim. Like, my, I'm, I'm on drugs now. I'm, you know, I'm an alcoholic. I'm, you know, doing all these horrible things because of my father. And, and I started to look at myself, and I realized that I was that person, too. I was sitting here being a victim. I was blaming my dad for everything that I was going through. And at the time of my teenage years, you know, I, I really needed my dad. And, and I think there was a point where I got to a place where I just got extremely suicidal. I was really in this deep, pity, kind of self-loathing place. And, I, I mean, the first time I actually tried to take my life, I was nine years old. And I was, uh, it was, you know, I mean... It, it's easier to me to talk about it now, but Nine like, you know, so kind of, it was, uh, it was pretty tough, you know, and I tried to hang myself actually in the closet oh my with a uh, telephone cord and mm-hmm. I mean, get to the graphics, I guess, but it was one of those moments where I did it and I was up there, but then the, the, the little wooden dowel in the closet, it just kind of fell off and broke. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just remember crying myself to sleep, you know, at that point. And, and I you just, were in that much pain. I was in so much pain mm-hmm. and, you know. It was a, that was one of many. That was the beginning. It was the first time. And then it was progressively getting more and more like serious. Like, okay, let me try this. Let me try that. So and was multiple, it, multiple, multiple times. attempts. Was it something you brought to your mom? Even the aspect of being fatherless. Like, did she, did, were those conversations that you were having in your household? Did she know that you were suicidal? Take us through your relationship with your mom during those years. My mom did not know I was suicidal until my very last attempt at 19 years old. Uh, I had swallowed over 300 pills. I cut my wrist and I just, I was done. You know, I, mm-hmm. I passed out on the front living room floor. I was living with my grandma at the time and my cousin happened to be there. And, uh, he kind of saw me stumble out in the living room and thought I was playing. And then he saw my wrist all bloodied up and everything. And he looked at me and he's like, Oh crap. Like this is real. Mm-hmm. Called my aunt. She's an RN. And, uh, she rushed me to the hospital. And I just remember pieces of that. Um, I remember they made me drink liquid charcoal and I was in the hospital somewhere around a week or so. I don't know exactly. Oh. Um, but I kind of woke up in this like I didn't have, like, the light at the end of the tunnel or anything like that. It was just, like, this consciousness awareness that just kind of... I remember kind of waking up at one point a couple days in the hospital, and I looked down, and my little niece at the time, she was probably, like, I don't know, six or seven. And she... uh, I just remember seeing her eyes, and I'm I'm in this bed. And I'm seeing her looking at me, and I'm like, I don't want her to see this. This, I don't want to be that uncle. I don't Mm -hmm. want her to see that. And, I mean, I don't have kids myself, but, like, that feeling of, like just kind of awareness of like what are you doing mm-hmm. like this isn't who you are this mm-hmm. isn't this isn't where you need to be and it was the beginning honestly of my journey of becoming a man it really that was the final attempt of my uh, my uh, suicidal kind of stage in my life which was a very long one but mm-hmm. um you know I, I i hope that sharing this story will be able to open up people uh, to to i guess create a platform for other people to talk about this because suicide is just one factor and one thing that it kind of affects people who grew up without a father. Um, I mean, there's so many other statistics and all those boring things, but they're really, really important when you look at this issue because I think a lot of people just think it's like, oh, you're just feeling sorry for yourself. And there's oh. real facts that, that have shown that people are, I think, struggling, whether it's high school dropouts or teen pregnancies. Mm-hmm. 63% of, I, I looked this up the other day, um, 63% of, house, of, of suicides 
or suicide attempts uh, come from from people who are fatherless. I mean, that's a massive statistic. That's huge. And I've seen statistics of like fatherless households in the United States. I've, it's interesting because like not the statistics aren't specific. Like the, you would think like with this an issue, like it's going to be twenty five percent or whatever. Yeah. And I've seen so many different sources say anywhere from twenty three percent to fifty percent of households are fatherless. So it's like it's interesting that we have such a massive issue in our country. Mm. And no one's really honed in on those specific. On what the actual statistic? What is, is it? And and like geographically, you know, is it different than you know the south, southern part of the United States? And, you yeah. know, all these different socioeconomical things. Right. Like I, I don't know, but and also I think if some fathers drop in and out too. That's a whole other conversation. Yeah. How do you quantify that? Yeah. Yeah. It's like what do you, what do you count growing up in a and, and to you I and mean, what do you count as a as a fatherless individual? One who because you mentioned in the trailer of your film that you were you had your father in your house until you were six years old. Yep. And then after that he went away. And so and, and everyone has, you know, different pieces of, of that. Uh, so I'd be I, I would be interested to hear your take on, you know, what do you consider someone who who is a, a fatherless individual? I, I think that's a really complex thing and I still haven't figured it out mm-hmm. completely, but I think it's interesting because the initial instinct is fatherless is your dad's not there. He's just yep. pre- you don't you probably don't even know your dad. Right. But as I started, like I've interviewed over 100 people, you know, in the last six years of doing this. And, and I've talked to so many people who have completely different experiences and, and very similar experiences. And I think I've, I've learned that the, a lot of people who consider themselves fatherless or, or don't necessarily consider themselves fatherless are fathers that are emotionally unavailable or emotionally absent. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's also a lot of fathers who are there. They're in the house. They're sitting in the recliner every day. They work their butts off. And, you know, they're, they're doing the fatherly thing because they're paying the bills. And, and, and you start to get into this conversation, you realize that some of these kind of, um, I think, psychological issues that people who have with their dad not being there at all, they're very similar to people who have a father who's physically there but emotionally absent. And it's interesting because, like, both of our situations, we don't have a relationship with our father, and we don't have a model of, of who our dad is other than my dad works hard, you know? Yeah. Right. That's great, but, like, who is he as a person? How does he deal with these life life's issues? And, and how can I grow from his wisdom? How, how is he imparting into my life? And... And just to go through the motions as a man, I think, is really a conversation that I want to start and have. I think especially being millennials that I think we, me being a a man myself, I I hope that we can start a conversation about redefining what it means to be a man. Yes. And and being stuck in this archaic old ideal of... Of it's just a provider and that's it. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's so many... Men are multifaceted... So many layers that uh, you know that we have, and I think we need to start having those conversations. Well, we definitely need to start having those conversations, and vulnerability is something that I have continued to harp on on this platform and something that Joy and I, a value that Joy and I hold really high within our relationship, yeah. and it's something that men don't exhibit and aren't encouraged to exhibit you know, because we have these social constructs of what a man is supposed to be, how a man is supposed to act, how a man is supposed to talk. And, you know, I credit that vulnerability a lot to my own upbringing is, you know, my parents weren't traditionalists. You know, my dad worked from home. My dad took me to school. My dad did the laundry. My dad cooked dinner. My mom was the one who commuted to work, who came home late. And so it was because I saw that dynamic, it never was like, oh, this is what the man is supposed to do. This is what the woman's supposed to do. It was like, this is what your parents are supposed to do. Yeah. And regardless, you know, wh- whoever was doing what, they made it work. And we were beneficial because of, of, that, of that work, that, that the teamwork that they put together. Wow. Uh, and, it, and it's so, so important. And, and, I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up because it is definitely a topic that, that's not talked about enough. Now, I want to I go back to what you said you know, a little bit earlier you said your mother didn't know you were suicidal until you were 19 years old. Once she found that out, how did that relationship shift with your mom? I don't know. I mean, I think my relationship with my mom has been progressive and evolving. I think, um, you know, it actually was a driving force. Uh, I lived in Sacramento. I, gra- I graduated high school. I'm from a small town in Kansas. I worked on... Um, I graduated high school. I, I, I moved to Sacramento. Initially, I was like, I'm going to get my residency in California, live with my grandma. That's when I... A couple, couple years out here, and that was the final attempt. And I had that awakening after the being in the hospital, and I was like, I think I need to go back home. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I was running away from my problems. Got you. 
And so I realized even deeper than that as I was just, I don't know what it was. I mean, I'm, I consider myself very spiritual. And I, I knew that there was something deeper inside that I had to deal with that I was running away from. And as I got further beneath those dark, creepy areas that we don't want to address and deal with sometimes, uh, I realized it was my dad. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't like a, you know, it's going to just happen overnight because yep. that was just the beginning. I mean, that wasn't even ugh, another 10 years ago. <laughs> yeah. But it was the beginning of me acknowledging it. Got you. And, and I went back home. And ironically enough, I was, I mean, I was still angry and I still didn't want to go home and ugh, long story. But got to a point where I ended up having to live with my mom because uh, I just, I just didn't have it figured out. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go home just for a little bit. And I was, uh, I was sleeping in my car for like a, a about a little over a week, and uh, I, was, thought I, was, I was just a dubber. No, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I, could go I don't home. need to go home. I can yeah. do this all by yeah. myself. I was bathing in a laundromat. I'm like, I got this. Oh, my we, God. We, I was like, I don't care. Oh, yeah. I would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I found I was allergic to borax. No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I, 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 uh, it was an ice storm. Tree fell down, and it hit a car next to me. And it was, I mean, it's Kansas, it's freezing. And I was looking up and I was like. Oh, this was winter. Like, this is wintertime oh, in Kansas. Man. So they, I've learned that the heater only lasts for a couple of hours. <laughs> if you're not moving. I was like, oh, okay. Gotcha. Blankets, all this stuff. So freezing. I go back home. And um, my mom's like, my mom's just staying for the weekend. That's it. And she's like, okay, but if you want, you can stay as long as you want. You know, how moms are sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, they know, but they just don't want to tell you. Of course. Yeah. They know everything. <laughs> All the time. All the time. The mother, a mother's intuition is literally it's unmatched the worst by anything. Slash the ridiculous. best thing, yeah. It's ridiculous. It really was. And I, and I, yeah, now I know that she knew. And it was one of, the, and this was coming right off the suicide. She, you know, she made, she actually, you know, I think she actually made it out to California. And, and you know, after the attempt and everything was really supportive and, and understood. I, I knew she understood. Uh, and then I go home and I'm, and I'm still confused and I'm like, all right. She's like, well, okay, you're, you're with me for a little bit longer than a couple of days. Cool, but. You live with me, you got to get a job. Yeah. Got to get a job in a small town. There's not many choices. So I was going to work in this factory in this, on, this, on an assembly line. And so I worked in a factory for two years on an assembly line. And just like, in the, the funny thing is the thing that I always told myself that I was never going to do was work in this factory because that's where my dad's been working for 20 years. So it's whole how life had man how life ah yeah I can't even imagine what that must have felt like emotionally. No, it was painful. So yeah. I am like, all right, this is the best paying job in town. So I'm like, I'm gonna do it, I guess, but I don't want to see my dad. Like all this is anger, you know. Mm-hmm. And I go and do the job interview, three job interviews down the road. I got the same last name, obviously, and they're like, Are you related to so and so? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And I'm like, oh well, if you told that was your dad, then we would have hired you on the spot. I was like, but I wanted to do it on my own. Like, like, I didn't sure. care. So then I'm going in every single day seeing my father. And we had different shifts. So I'm walking in to the late shift as he's walking out from the golden shift in the, in the afternoon. And would you speak? Literally, it was this acquaintance. It was very, oh, we would acknowledge so each strange. other. We would address each other. I mean, you know, I mean, I knew my dad. Yeah. I, and we had a cordial relationship, you know, like it wasn't, I mean, at but least on the surface, enough. it yeah. wasn't. But just to be like, hi, how you doing with your dad is hard. It was challenging. And so everyone at work is telling me about how this awesome weekend with my father was and how, you know, well, what are you you doing that thing with your dad this weekend? I'm sitting here like, God, just give me the strength to bite my tongue. Like, you know, because I wanted to just, you know, and and a lot of it was coming from the wrong place. I I wanted to just be. Destroy it. Destroy it. And and I'm so glad that I held back. I'm so glad that I didn't go with the anger inside. And I just, but it was challenging. And I realized like now, two years on this assembly line in this factory, working my butt off, I shot my first documentary, motivated me to to do that. And, And I realized that that was important for me because Literally, the one thing that I hadn't done my entire teenage years and most of my upbringing was see my father. And now I'm forced to see my father every day, every single day for these next two years, Monday through Friday. And I'm realizing that that was the beginning of me confronting my father. Mm-hmm. And it, from that point on up to the documentary, A Fatherless Generation, that was the whole kind of hinge of this film. And I did, again, I, in hindsight, it looks like it was all planned out. For but sure. At the, I just realized that I'm, as I'm saying this, like, that's really been my whole process in becoming a man is finding the courage to confront the one thing that I was so afraid of, and that was my father. Mm-hmm. And that's what this film's about. It's documenting the last six years of my life and building up the courage to confront my fears, which 
it first started with, uh, I grew up in the Bible Belt, so I, confronting a psychic was a big no-no. Like, yeah. talking to a psychic, my mom told me I'm going to go to hell and burn. Of yeah. course. If I go to a psychic, and then it just kind of turned into, you know, going, I, skydiving was another fear of mine, and just kind of led up to all these kind of, the big moment of confronting my father, and, and that's what I did in this film. What were you afraid of? Are you afraid to lose something, to gain a truth that you didn't want to know? Or what were you, what was, what was it? keeping you from talking to him uh, i yeah i mean there was a lot of things uh i mean i was afraid of his reaction mm -hmm. I, I was afraid of him rejecting me probably mm -hmm. if i'm honest about it I, I think there was a level of like fear of rejection even though i was kind of already being rejected but yeah. maybe you just wanted to not push away what you were getting from him it, it wasn't enough, but maybe it was a little bit, and you didn't yeah. want to lose that. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Like, yeah, there were moments where I just was like, I didn't really have him around, so, you know, I don't need him anymore. I'm just going to blow up and just tell him off. I don't need him anyways. But mm -hmm. there was like that, and I think that's an interesting kind of dichotomy of being a child from a situation like that where it's like, no matter how angry you are at your parents, there's still like that innate, natural, like, you that's love. love. Those are my parents. Yeah. And, and that's why it gets so confusing and really challenging, I think, internally to, mm -hmm. to understand it's like how can this person hurt me so much and yet i still want to protect them mm -hmm. and it's so i don't mm. know it's, it's challenging so mm -hmm. at, at what point of your six years you've been filming this at what point did you go then and say i need to go sit down with my father and face all of this pain this frustration this anger that i felt my entire life well, speaking of dreams, the initial dream was to shoot the film and to tell the stories. I had another dream that said, I, just, I, I don't remember the exact mm -hmm. things that happened. I just remember the moments. And then the second dream I had was to, I need to be in the film. Like, I just literally woke up. Like, it was, like, out of a movie. Like, I popped up in a cold sweat. Like, I just knew. Like, sometimes I have those dreams. Like, I just... Dude, prophetic. I, I like yeah, that. I love that. I was like, guess the Bible Belt served you. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> and then the third dream... Same feeling. It just was, and the third dream was, I need to confront my father. And it was, just, but it's, it was a process, and, and that's what I'm learning. That I think anyone who deals with growing up without a father on any level, I think that it's a process. I think that if you're willing to take the steps and to understand yourself and and to dive into what that that pain is. Understand that you, you have to be patient with yourself. I think it's really challenging, and it's it's so easy to compare yourself to other people's relationships with their parents and say, "Oh, well, you, his dad was there, and look at him; he's got a good job now, and all this kind of stuff." And like, and I think as you start to kind of understand, from you know, I think from a parental point of view, I'm not a parent, but I started to look at my father as as a human being, mm -hmm. and less as a just you're an asshole who ruined my life. Yeah. Humanizing. I humanize them. And, and I started to realize, like, my bo both my parents, like, they had us, uh, my, my sister, she's older, uh, their first kid, my mom was 17, 18 years old, and then had me uh, five years later, and my brother a couple years later, like, they were kids having kids. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm like, and I'm sitting here like, God, I'm like 31 years old now, and like, I don't have a kid. <laughs> so you can I, only imagine... They're like nineteen, twenty. I'm like right, and you see where you were at nineteen. God, dang. Like, yeah. I'm like, there's yeah. no way. So I'm, of yeah. course they were screwed up. <laughs> not that it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's not an excuse, but there, not, there's some understanding there of how it could have happened if it had to have. And, and I started to put myself in that that headspace, mm -hmm. and, and again, it didn't justify, you know, the, what he had done or what my parents had done, but I think that it just allowed me to understand. And, and I think as I started to, like you said, humanize them, I started to be a lot more empathetic. And, and I started to, and, and eventually I started having conversations with my dad about his, his father and my grandfather and how that relationship, my grandpa was like an old Marine World War II vet, like this old rugged, I mean, he's passed away now, but like, you know, at the time, like I, at least I got to know the guy, but like he was a rugged old school, you know, black man who was like, you know, just gonna, you know, do whatever he had to do. He didn't cry. He didn't have emotions. Like he's over in, you know, Germany fighting World War II and burying dead bodies. Like this is yeah. my grandpa's life. Like why would he show any emotion? Exactly. And bringing that and showing that to your father. So that's what your father saw yeah. as the representation. Right. And then you take that experience with his own experience and, and being young, it's like, all right. Well. And, and socially it's not okay, yeah. especially in a small town community where you're a blue collar hard worker. Like you're not supposed to, like you just pick it up and go. You work. You don't complain. 
And, and, and that's what I did learn from my dad, though, that I really love and, and appreciate about him is aside from the things that, you know, he had done, I think one of the big things I did learn was his, his work ethic and him being a hard worker. And, and I, But I think that there's a balance. I don't think that being a hard worker and being this macho, physically fit, strong guy is mutually exclusive from being emotionally yeah. intelligent and, and emotionally available for your kids. They can exist at the same time. I think they can. And, and I think that's, that's why I wanted to do this movie. <laughs> yeah. And so you pick, up, you pick up the phone. You say, Dad, I want to sit and talk to you, and I want to interview you, or I want to tell our story through this documentary. What, is, what was his reaction? I, I don't want to give it away. I believe Okay, me. I won't give it away. I, I mean, I think it's interesting, though. I, a teaser, a teaser. I, I, let's just say it didn't, the first phone call was, was, it, it was, it was a hell of a curveball. Okay. Uh, and it hurt. Uh, I played it off really cool. And I actually documented it. It was on camera. It's actually in the film that moment. When I called my dad the first time and asked him to be in the film. And uh, it was, it was, I think I was coming, at that point in this transition, my evolution, uh, I was angry. And, and I think my dad, he, 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 he had the instincts. He had, the, he had those instincts. So, uh, yeah, that was the initial, that was the initial response. It was, it was. Now I'm excited. Now I was like, man, I want to hear it. I want to know <laughs> yeah. what happened. I want to know what happened. I mean, I feel like that's part of this whole No, it is. Yeah. It's a part of the, it is a, a part of the journey. I want to tell you. I really Yeah, do. no, yeah. Don't, don't tell me. No, don't no, don't, no, yeah. Yeah. We don't tell the people listening. Yeah, we yeah. definitely yeah. need to, to see the film. What would, what would you say, you know, after, you know, you've had these series of conversations, the film is completed. What was the biggest thing that you have learned about yourself throughout this journey? Yeah, man. I, I mean, I really try not to get emotional, and that's kind of an interesting statement. Yeah. Get, get emotional, right? But you know what I mean. The like theme, there is that yeah. there is that guy kind of mm-hmm. thing that I think we have for a lot of reasons that I just want to hold back. Um, but realistically, I think the thing that I got was what you said earlier was vulnerability, uh, and realizing that vulnerability doesn't equate to um, weakness. Uh, vulnerability, it actually takes a lot more courage to be vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, and to be open and, and willing to be honest and authentic and to be, like, truly, truly uh, who you are. I think that that it takes a whole different kind of courage that I'm just now kind of walking into. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not afraid to tell people my story. I'm not afraid to to, to be upfront about something that, that's affecting me because I, I realize that there's so much power uh, and so many, so many things can can change for the better if you open up and, and you're honest. Yeah, because there are other people going through it. There's people that you can relate to. You never know who you will help, who's further behind on their journey just by telling your story. And you can jump start, you know, and get them to where they need to be. Um, I wanted to ask you how how this affects your your intimate relationships, your relationships with uh, women. <laughs> this <laughs> is the part, there. this is go. the part where, <laughs> this is the part where I should have told you you, you can't ask. <laughs> <laughs> no. You got to talk about yeah, it. Some stuff. Oh, some off-limits stuff. Honestly, I have no issue like talking about this because I think that this, that is, that is probably been affected the most and it hasn't been good. Mm-hmm. And I, and what I mean by that is uh, it's, I mean, I'm in L.A. too, so the dating world in L.A. is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. But it's been an evolution for me. And, and, and what I mean by that is I think that there was a part of me that was, you know, I used to be very angry. I used to be a victim and blame the whole world. And anybody who came into my world who, you know, didn't fit uh, in this kind of beautiful box in my own head mm-hmm. it was always their fault. Mm-hmm. And, and I never took any responsibility for who I was as a person, how I was reacting, how I was speaking to people. Mm-hmm. And I think my my first relationship uh, was like young. I was a late bloomer, but my first real girlfriend, uh, I was a teenager. And I was just, I realized that I was emotionally abusive. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like, it's hard for me to admit, but I also have to be honest because I, I've, I've evolved and I'm not that guy. But I was emotionally abusive. I was never physically abusive. I, I just, there was not, there wasn't that part of me. I remember one time my sister, when I was really little, I, was, I guess just kind of the benefit. I was raised by, you know, my, mostly my mom and my, my grandmas and my older sister. And I remember my sister one time looking at me and she said, whatever you do, you will never hit a woman. And like, I just always had chills, you know, down my throat or down my back. And uh, it just always stuck with me. But the thing that I wasn't taught is, okay, don't hit a woman. I understand that. That's, that's, that's a given. 
but how is it any different when you're emotionally abusing people? Mm -hmm. I, I get that, yeah, they're not on this, they're not in the same world, but yet they're still being abused. Yeah, they, and there can be, both can be extremely detrimental. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I think that it is easier to accidentally emotionally abuse somebody because all it really is is emotionally manipulating somebody for yeah. your desired win, really, for, you for, for how you want to film that. Make them, or to make them feel what you're feeling. Yeah. Uh, it's it's that, and it is. It's very unhealthy. Yeah. Well, it's and, very unhealthy. And it's but. something I said I've had to look within my own relationship. I mean, things are my behaviors that were natural to me that I didn't think yeah. anything of. You know, I wouldn't categorize them as emotionally abusive. But then Joy would sit down and say, "This, this, and this makes me feel horrible." And you're like, "Whoa!" And you're like, "I, <laughs> I never, you know, thought about that." Yeah. I'm, I remember the one time there was it was it was a New Year's, and we were filming. We just had the camera on, and Joy had did something, and and I was like, Joy, Joy, why are you something? And and Talking I didn't crazy. Yeah, and I didn't think <laughs> of and I didn't think of anything. I was like, you know, what are you doing? And my friend had played that video back, and he said, I want you to watch this. Who and did it? don't worry about it. A friend played. <laughs> a, a friend played the video back, and I said, I want you to to look at this. And you know, I looked at it, and I was just like, Holy shit. Like, it just looked so bad. Yeah. And to me, it was, oh, this is just my natural reaction. Like, what are you doing? I'm upset. Let me tell you how I feel. And, and at that moment, I was like, okay, is, this is how am, am I communicating and, and yeah. what are the effects that it is having? And, and it is something that from that point forward is I've become way more conscious of how I say things, what am I saying, and, and, and of course, I will still say things that are out of pocket, and then <laughs> we'll sit down and have a conversation. Yeah. And Joy's like, you, you can't. You can't say this. You can't talk this way because here are the reasons why. And 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 so I, I would definitely say that both the, the emotional and physical side are are two very important things. But we only shed light really on the physical. Yeah, and and I think you said something that is something that I I, I wish that we would be willing to do is I, you had an opportunity to reflect to learn from your mistake mm -hmm. you know in that situation and, and I mean fortunately I've had the opportunity through a lot more continuous failed relationships but at some point I was I realized that I had to reflect mm -hmm. some people aren't given that opportunity to look at themselves and some people aren't willing to look at themselves some people are right. not willing to say this I'm is me I'm, I am yeah. who I am but I was and I and I started you know having conversations and I started to I would reach out to some exes and, and I started to apologize. Aww, and some of them would say, look, this is what you did, this, this, and that. And, you know, other ones were just like, you're done. I'm, I don't know. Get away from me. Yeah. And I mean, respectfully and rightfully so. But there was a, most of my relationships, it, it was, I learned a lot. And fortunately, you know, aside from things not working out, I think I did had sometimes have some really candid conversations with my exes and, and they were like, look, Nathan, this is this, you're a great guy, but this really affected me. This hurt me. And and I, it was just progressively, I started to wake up and realize that, wow, like that, no, man, I don't want to be that guy. And they all had a similar narrative. Very similar in a lot of ways. And I, again, about the consciousness, I wasn't even conscious. And I think that's even more painful. I think it's even harder to change something, a pattern, whenever you're not conscious or aware of it. It's really right. hard to, to be a better man. It's really hard to be a better person when you have no image, no model, nobody telling you. Like, I get the whole, like, bring the girl flowers on the first date. I'm raised in the Midwest. Like, girls in L.A., you open the door, they're, like, freaking shocked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! He opened the door for me, girl. Did I tell you? Yeah. <laughs> and I could. That's get, a damn shame. <laughs> and I get to that point, and I was cool to like you know hook him. But when it came to like having a functional relationship beyond like that first like three month like honeymoon stage, that was the part I was I was really messing up on. I didn't know how to sustain a relationship right. that was healthy. So and we talked about emotional abuse. What about emotional intimacy? Did you have a hard time entering an intimate space emotionally with these women? I don't know that I did. Uh, I mean, I think sometimes it was definitely more of a physical drive, mm -hmm. you know, sexual motivation. I mean, absolutely. Um, emotionally, there were times that it was... I never had a problem performing, I guess, in a sense. But, yeah. like, I mean, I know intimacy is a lot more than just the, the physical act. Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. I'm talking about, like, emotionally. Did you feel like you had a safe emotional space to communicate your hopes and dreams and fears or your your hurt, your pain? I get you, yeah. Um, 
there were times that I did, but I did realize that that was a big key factor. I didn't feel safe. I felt judged. Mm-hmm. Uh, I felt like, um, yeah, I felt I was because I was so insecure. Mm-hmm. I was so insecure that I thought I was supposed to be this idea of what I whatever messed up uh, version of a guy. I thought I, I thought was going to be a great guy. Uh, he obviously was a jerk, but like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I and that's the whole part of me redefining who I am. But like it was I think there were times that it was probably the most challenging when I didn't feel safe. And I think it's really hard when you have the conversation relationship wise with certain uh certain girls because like sometimes they're like, I want a really emotional man and he's available and all that and then you get to that point and then they're like, Okay, he's too emotional. Mm-hmm. And then you get to the other part where it's like, you know, I'm just like I'm not naturally like trying to be a jerk, but like you start having to be a jerk because that's what they're used to. Yeah. And it's not, it's just like, gotta, you know, I gotta be all like bossy and stuff. And it's like, I can do that for so long, but that's not who I am either. And it's like, how do you find that in between? Like, can't we just like be mutually? Yeah. Like, can we just be ourselves? Yeah. yeah. And, and like, you love we, and accept us. Why do I have to be in charge? Why do you have to be in charge? Like, can't we just be partners mm-hmm. and be on the same plane? And uh, yeah, I mean, but I also think it, it, it takes two. And sometimes I was in the wrong, and other times I was attracting the wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and I, there was times where I, I like was that. willing to open myself up, willing to be vulnerable. Um, and those times, those actually hurt me more because I was attracting that damaged little boy that I used to be. And I didn't, igno- I didn't realize that. So I'm attracting this old version of myself that I thought I had already kind of dealt with. Mm-hmm. And I'm attracting girls who had the same kind of emotional damage, mm-hmm. daddy issues, and, and just relationship issues in general. The same issues that I was having. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. So here I am ready to put my heart out on the table and be vulnerable. And then you have someone that comes that I'm attracting and then they're, they're, they're taking advantage of it and they're being emotionally abusive to me. Mm. So if I wasn't being emotionally abusive, someone else emotionally was being emotionally abused. abused. Yeah. And it was interesting, like, you know, when you, I've done the research about, you know, people who come from abusive households and, and all this kind of things that people have a, you know, it's like this traumatic PTSD where you mm. don't feel comfortable unless you're around it. Mm. And no matter how you, you can get out of that situation, but yet you feel so much more comfortable when you're in it. And yeah. it, it takes it's so familiar. Very and it's unfortunately part of your foundation. Yeah. Yeah, it's a part that would be nice if it weren't there, but the facts are the facts. It's that's what you grow up in, so. And how do you deal with it? And I think that's what I'm learning to do. And I and I'm not that person now. My dating life yeah. is non-existent because I'm focusing on my film right now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you know, I mean I'm open, but I, I just don't <laughs> He's think... He's available, that, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think that at the same time, like, I'm also more selective, and I don't waste my time. Like, mm-hmm. I, I want to be with somebody who's strong, intelligent, confident in who they are, and, and they, have a, they have a drive and a want that's beyond themselves. Like, yeah. I think, especially in this city, like, sometimes people just want to, you know, have the nice car and the nice this, this, and that, and, like, well, I want to do more. You said earlier, you it would be nice if you could just work together. You're looking for yeah. a partner. Absolutely. I yeah. think, yeah, And you absolutely. shouldn't settle for anything less. Yeah. Yeah. It, anybody, fatherless, household or not. Yeah. And I wouldn't say like, oh, we were, and maybe we were and just don't know it, more equipped to find a partner. And we found each other early, but we are both from a two-parent household, so. That's an interesting dynamic, too. I'm, yeah. I'm curious, like. I have, I have always said that everything that I know on how to be a husband, on how to be a man, how to be a functional human being was based on my upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I look back and, and see things, and Joy you know, says it all the time, oh, your father says that you do the exact same thing as your father. You the do the exact, exact same. same thing as yeah. your mother. But it worked. It, but I've seen it. I've seen it for 33 years. Now, I can't do exactly what they did for Joy and I because they are two different people and mm-hmm. we are two different people. But to be around something for 18 years before I left yeah. to go to college, you have no choice but to be influenced by that. And, and yeah. as you get older... With the relationship that I have with my parents, I've always trusted them. They've trusted me. So I go back and, hey, what's your opinion on? What mm-hmm. do you think about this? How should I go about that? But so you're constantly you know, yeah. having that, that influence. Uh, but I, I know for me, for sure, that my biggest motivation on wanting to be a husband was seeing who my father was. Yeah. Right. I don't know if my, father, if my father wasn't in the home, if I would have that same drive. I don't know. Well, and I think it's interesting to counter that. Like, there's people who I know who have that, and they have been in multiple divorces, et cetera, et cetera. And there's people who don't have any relationship with their father and are the best fathers and the best husbands. 
Right. So it's like, what is that like I missing think, factor? I think yeah. it depends on. So it's like if you take somebody from an abusive household, you either have the person who's like, I will never be that way, or you have the person who's like, I've learned this thing and this is what I'm going to do. So I think that. Yeah. I think that's probably what we're dealing with. Conver- conversely. And my my situation was that my parents divorced when I was older. So I saw the successful marriage, and then I saw I witnessed the demise of it. So then I was left questioning, do those things actually work? So I, I'm, I'm here with the benefit of a two-parent household, mm-hmm. but again, their marriage is no longer. So and, and it made me question my foundation and, you know, was what I saw the way to do things. Um, Relationship-wise, I think in having that conversation, that was, I think, the biggest thing that I'm still hesitant about. Mm-hmm. I Not only my parents getting divorced when I was young, but like I'm seeing so many family members who've had dysfunctional relationships mm-hmm. and friends as well, you know? Mm-hmm. And some of them have, you know, uh, parents that are still together, but a lot of them, like, they aren't successful in marriage. And, and I'm sitting here like... <sighs> Yeah, why do I why do I want to join? The, yeah, and, and what I, yeah, I I hear it, and we have friends who I look ask, at the statistics. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm we just have saying. friends. Well, marriage is hard, also. Like that's the other thing. And even though I want to say, that even though my parents divorced, it was successful for a long time. Yeah. So you can look at it that way too. But but yeah. I would say you know speaking to as as you said with our generation is you got fourteen windows that pop up and your attention is moving is mm-hmm. we are so distracted mm-hmm. with so many things. Okay, yes, we get married. People like the idea of it because we're, we're, yeah. we're an Instagram generation mm-hmm. right now. We're in an Instagram world. Is, is people like the idea of creating Pinterest boards and taking pictures for Instagram and their web presence than they actually care about the work that goes into making this relationship and this marriage successful. Mm-hmm. Is It's a facade. Yeah. It's, it's mm-hmm. true. What we've been sold is, okay, this is what we're supposed to do. This is how we're supposed to act. Well, I'm 25. I'm supposed to be married now. I'm 30. I'm supposed to have my first baby. Picture, picture, look at me. Everything is fine. But the reality is, is all of our life paths and our journeys are very different. Mm-hmm. Joy and I are almost 30. We don't own a home. Joy and I are almost 30. We don't have any kids. Mm-hmm. And I don't hold myself, you know, I, I don't look at myself poorly because I don't have it. But the one thing that I, I do know in looking at, at my marriage is I, I made that decision because I was upfront and honest with myself that I was willing to do the work to make this last forever. Mm-hmm. And... I don't think enough people understand the vow that they take when they get married. Marriage is the first time in your life where you make a lifetime commitment to someone. What in your life right now, at 31 years old, have you ever committed for your life to? What, what have you committed? I mean, for me, the closest that I could even say would be my film yeah. and, and filmmaking and being, you know, the filmmaker that I aspire to be. I've literally, you know, broke, sleeping in cars, all that. Like, it doesn't matter. I know that there's nothing else I can see myself doing. You've for been sure. in a relationship with And that's that relationship. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and people look and say, okay, well, I like marriage or I'm supposed to get married. My parents are married. Well, when you become an adult, you get married and you have kids. Yeah. yeah. So they, they fall in love with the idea of. The idea. But they haven't made that commitment to saying, okay, I'm going to commit to this person for the rest of my life. I think if, if you really understood what that meant, yeah. and if all the actions that you had to do, the jobs you had to take, the friendships that you had to make, and said, I'm going to commit to this job, or I'm going to commit to this person for the rest of my life, you would be a lot more selective mm-hmm. and a lot more conscious of who you picked or what selection, or what job, or what career, or what dream you want to pursue. Absolutely. Because you're realizing that this is your life, mm-hmm. yep. and people aren't taking that. It's a, oh, this is a checkbox on a list, yep. and that's not the case. Absolutely. No, and I think everything you said is 100% on point, and, and that's what I started to look, and having conversations with you guys who were married, but other you know people who were married, whether it was like newlyweds or... You know, people who've been married for thirty years, and I and I have always like having these conversations with uh, you know older men who have been through those relationships, and everything you're saying is like that. It's a real like commitment, and, and are you willing to go through that relationship even when things are horrible? Mm-hmm. And and I don't know what that's like unless it like I said in the film, and like I had to realize the whole process of what it means to be a filmmaker to survive in Hollywood and everything. How many people like quit and left, you know, after film school? How many people quit uh, their project because they didn't have the money or all that? And and I'm sitting here looking at myself and I'm saying, you know what? Even if I don't get whatever this is going to be at the end of the day, like I'm still not going to quit. And and I know it sucks right now. I know that I don't have the job that I want to have and all that kind of stuff. 
But like, I, I, it's, do I want to go back on that factory and the assembly line? And because <laughs> of that, you have produced this film. And because mm-hmm. of that, you're going to reach millions of people and talk about mm-hmm. a conversation and a topic that is very much needed in our yeah. society because you understood yeah. what it meant to commit your life to something. Yeah. And that's what you know, marriage is. That's what, I mean, that's what everything is. If we, when we find that passion and we're willing to do whatever it can, you're willing to work for it. You will sleep in a car. I will do whatever it takes. I will write. I will produce. I will direct. I will edit my own documentary just to tell my story. Yeah. Uh, do you, damn. I mean, I need a hype <laughs> I man. Like, I got a hype man right now. Yeah. I can't pay you anything. Yeah, no, no, it's all good. I'm feeling inspired. Yeah, but, I, mean, I am. And, and, and that's what it is. And, it, and it's just so important and so critical. And, and, and I guess our generation, as, as I've said before, just you know, a few minutes ago, is be, we're so distracted. Yeah. We, we don't have anything that we commit to. You know, it, it's the it's the... the the, the paradox of choice, or we have you know, analysis paralysis. We have too many options. Mm-hmm. So it's just becoming, it's becoming so difficult to stick to one thing. Well, why do I want to marry this person when I can download this app and I have a million at my fingertips? Mm-hmm. Why do I want to stay at this job when I got a million jobs I can go apply on LinkedIn or whatever the case may be? Because we have so much available, it's like we, can't, we can't stick to anything. But, and I think it, that's rooted even deeper of looking at the responsibility. Sure. And when you start to stop thinking selfishly, and you start to look at the fact that if I make this choice, then I could hurt somebody. Or, you know, if I make this choice, I can actually help somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times we get so caught up in the facade that we don't realize that we are literally creating this ripple effect around us in our communities, in our families, in our households. And I think if we started to be more conscious about the choices we made and we're aware of how we affect people and how we impact people, we might take a minute and a deep breath and... and maybe rethink the choice that we're going to make. I, I heard a, a minister listen to a little church sometimes. <laughs> and, and, and I heard this guy one time, he, he said, and I don't remember who it was. I just remember he said that you never know, you may just be the key to somebody else's freedom. Mm-hmm. And, and like, it just, the way he said it and with such conviction, I, I, that was like a wake up call for me to like realize that I have a responsibility, not only for myself, but for my community and for my other people, like I, my family, my friends, my future children, you know, my future relationships, whatever that is. Like when you start to realize that you could be helping somebody, you could be the bridge to, to giving somebody else life. You start to make wiser choices. You start to be like, you know, wait a minute. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to make people go through what I went through. And and I think that that goes into the relationship that you guys have and and like just being more consciously aware of the choices you make. And like Mm -hmm. like you said, you saw that video with how you were talking to your your wife and like, wait a minute, that's not who I want to be. I love her. I respect her. I can't be doing that. And and I think when you start to respect yourself, you know, it's just, it becomes, you know. Yeah, if if we can get to that point, and I think as as a country, we've moved so far away from that point. Yeah. As it has been so selfish, it's so divisive, it is so polarizing that we have lost that responsibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To say that we are bigger. You know, this this platform, our message, everything that we do is bigger than just the two of us. Your yeah. film is far bigger than you. Yeah. And when we can realize that, I mean, it really can change the world and we are in a much needed place. So I hope that that message gets resonated throughout the world so we can hope for a better future because good lord knows if we stay on this track we're gonna have a better future because of your film we are gonna have better fathers and we're just gonna have more responsible and committed parents in general i believe that yeah no i i hope so and you know i just i'm I'm excited about whatever the future has and I, i regardless of you know wherever the film goes I think at the end of the day, just having a conversation about, uh, you know, fatherhood and the importance of fatherhood mm-hmm. and, um, you know, just having a, a conversation about, I, I think we just need to create a new blueprint for manhood. Yeah. And, and uh, I think it's ever evolving. And, and I think the more we start to have conversation with it, especially with like teens, like I went to actually a teen group. It was a local uh, community uh, program in Santa Clarita. And uh, this uh, amazing community program to help uh, create jobs for teenagers in the community. And I spoke to them, and I initially was going to put them in the film, and I shared my story. And I had these, it was a group of like 20 young men from 13 years old to like 18. And I just met them that day, and I swear to you, like every single one of those boys 
had they were just crying. Their mm-hmm. their tears were just running down their face, talking about because they felt how, seen. How exactly? And I realized that they didn't have a voice. You could tell like they wanted to talk about this stuff, mm-hmm. but but they weren't allowed well, for whatever reason. And like I had the lady who ran the program, um, and she came to me afterwards. She was in the room, and but it was just like let's we're just having a conversation. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Nathan, like, I don't, I don't know. I've known these, these little, these young men for like five years and I've never heard these stories. Like, you know, and just like, was just talking about how, how she realized that how much they really just wanted to talk. And and I think we need to have these conversations, not only for ourselves, but I think there's a whole other generation coming way, you know, after us Mm -hmm. that uh, we, we have to kind of be the the people who forge that path to, to change. Most definitely. Well, I'm I'm very excited to to see the film. I said when I saw the trailer, I got goosebumps. So I'm mm-hmm. glad you're you're you created this film, and they said your your message is going to be seen by people all across the globe. And I'm I'm very excited to watch that journey unfold. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate that. So for our first time listeners and Nathan, since he hasn't listened to a show all the way through, <laughs> we're going to now do a segment called Fishbowl. Nathan's going to select three to five questions out of the bowl. They're random questions. Some are deep. Some are a little more. Well, not all of them are a little deep, but some of them are lighter than others. And you just have to answer truthfully. It's your only task. Blindfully. Yeah. No more relationship questions. <laughs> <laughs> are you holding on to something that you need to let go of? Damn. <laughs> I, I like that you got that one. <laughs> Actually, I got this phone. Um, <laughs> I have an iPhone 5S. <laughs> yeah. uh-uh. no. you, you, no. def- you definitely need to get yes. let go of that. But, but, but that's, that's not, not a acceptable answer. Right. I answered yeah. the question. Yeah. That is not acceptable I would answer. prove it to you. Yeah, that, that 5S. Like, yeah, that's, that yeah. is bad. I, would I don't even know how that's that. working. But I'm not going to allow that to be a passing glitch. question. I'm just saying. Is it glitching like crazy? It is ridiculous. I'm still not updating it. I know what the updates Yeah. What am I holding on to that I need to let go of? God, I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, honestly, this film has been everything like that. This anger, um, fear. Um, you know, I mean, I think that there still is a hesitation in general for me to even have this conversation. Like, I, I feel as I get into it, you know, like, and I start talking, like, it, it just flows. But, I mean, there still is a fear that uh, I won't be accepted. There's still a fear of rejection that I have for my father. And, and my dad has been actually believe it or not, very supportive in this and, and very encouraging. And, and you know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I honestly, I think fear has been one of those things that I'm, I'm learning to let go of and just keep keep doing what, what uh, I'm convicted to do. I, I don't know how else to answer that right now. For sure. That's acceptable. Okay. Continue. And the iPhone 5S. Oh, we got to do more. <laughs> yes. Yes, you got to get How more. Many? You thought you were just going to get one? I thought yeah. one. That's what I'm like, God, no, it's only one? Three to five. Three to five. All right. How many of your friends would you trust with your life? What's the scenario? Like, are we, like, driving down the <laughs> freeway? <laughs> no, so you, you are about to embark on a journey that is so dangerous and so treacherous, and you can only take this group of people that regardless of what may come in front of you, you know they, they would take yeah. care of And you talked about people bailed on you during the filming. Yeah. Like, so it's like you uh, got to be selective. How, how many you got? I've learned to be selective in that. I mean, I know of, uh, I know of a couple. Uh, how many specifically? God, I'd say at least three to five. Realistically. Oh, that's solid. That's very solid. It's three to five. I know three for sure, but I think there's a couple on that fence where I feel like, you know, when, when push comes to shove, they would be there. Yeah. And do they know that? You know, that's maybe something I need to be more vocal about, you know? But I, I, a couple of them probably do, but I probably need to vocalize that more. Gotcha. Let's go with the final question. What do you wish you didn't know? I wish that I didn't know the way fast food was made. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you, safe yeah that is super safe. Uh, you know, I will, I will can let... Can you answer that? No, I will let this answer, pass. Answer the no, question. No, this is about no, you. No, I want to see. You, what are you guys? Come on, let's flip the script for You a are the subject. Come on, Joy. What do I wish I didn't know? Yeah, I'm curious. Let's see how honest you are. Maybe, maybe you'll open up a door for me. There are some... This is sad, but uh, you know this week was the Me Too. Mm-hmm. We, I will say that there's some sexual abuse stories that I wish I didn't know of in as much detail mm-hmm. but I also do feel like it's all of our burden to bear until the, yeah. the until it's you know not taken care of I, that's not really the word I'm looking for but until 
everyone knows about it. We, we all need to sit with the uncomfortability of it, but also like it fuels the fear because I do think yeah. that it's a fear that many women have um, is being, you know, we are, we're, pre- we're prey to male predators all the time and you fear the worst. So when you hear an account of somebody who has experienced the worst, it hurts and like I said, it, it fuels fear. And then you can't even imagine what they're going through. So you don't yeah. want to even, you don't want to put that it has affected you on them because they're mm-hmm. dealing with the real life trauma of it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's what I would say. That was a lot deeper than fast food. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and that's how you answer our question. Well, I, 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 I said I was going to give it away because you've been very open and transparent throughout this interview. And, and if I were to answer that question, I would say I wish I didn't know the work that I need to do to make me a better man because I know some of the things that I need to do that I'm just actively not doing because they're uncomfortable, yep. they're not fun, will require me to change, and I am just sitting on them. And I, through coercion, through conversation, through therapy, there, there are things that I, I know I need to do to be better but I don't want to do them. And I'm, I'm not at a place now where I'm willing to do them. And I wish I didn't know that. I, I think you both just kind of hit something, though, that at the core of it is, is ripping that Band-Aid off. And I think so many times we get so stuck in this just comfort zone. Like, I know it's happening, but the world isn't so... I don't want to hear... I don't want to yeah, deal with it. And sure. people don't realize that if we actually confront it, I mean, just like with the sexual abuse uh, stories that have been coming out, like, these aren't... This is not brand new. No. But yet, we as a society are just, like, wanting to, you know, people get paid off behind the tables, so I'll shut your mouth and all this kind of stuff. And, like, we're just now shocked that this is... And I'm sitting here, like, everything you're saying is, like, we need to talk about We have stuff. to. We absolutely we have, have to. to. Like I, I said, it is all of our burdens to bear. Exactly. I agree. Uh, it doesn't make it any less painful. And I, I more so than not... not wishing I didn't know I wish it didn't happen yeah that's that's the truth I wish it didn't happen and I think it it, it, over time as we start to realize and 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 proclaim that this is not okay I mean that's when Mm -hmm. you you have these industries I mean just in general like I think it's acceptable and sometimes people are passively encouraging abuse and and they aren't even necessarily aware that this is detrimental well that's what we've talked about this on the show about toxic masculinity and how and even toxic masculinity has something to do with you not wanting to do the work because it's easier for you to just be you know stereotypically to be male defined by society yeah. i mean you're tall handsome way cut, black easier. Man. i wish i could work out and <laughs> right. look like you, you can get this right <laughs> but those same societal standards are what 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 are hurting women 100%. so yeah. so yeah it does it goes hand in hand I, we just all have so much work to do and I'm, I'm glad that we know about it. And, and as you said, it starts with, with ripping off that band. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for thank joining us on this week's episode. We are very excited and look forward to the release of A Fatherless Generation. We will definitely keep you guys posted and up to date on when Nathan releases the film, where you can find more information about it. We will link all of that within the episode. To all you guys out there, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Married Millennials. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, and share it with your friends. And as always, let's keep the conversation going online. You can head over to our website, lovejays.com, and you will see all of our social media icons right there at the top of the page. Additionally, Nathan has a new song and music video to accompany it called Father, Father. It's now available on Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes. Be sure to check it out. Thanks again, and we'll see you next Tuesday.